This week has been one of those in which I was aiming in one direction for Sunday morning, and the Lord seemed to take the wheel and steer it at another, so the text for my sermon and the topic are not the same as those that are in the bulletin. The verse is a single one from the first chapter of Exodus, where we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This single verse in the second second book of the Bible represents a major sea change in the fortunes of Israel. And it also testifies to the singular importance of the last major character whose life is recorded in the first book of the Bible. In this year's Mid-Michigan Conference on Reformed Theology, the theme that we chose was signs of grace found in the lives of people recorded in the book of Genesis. And for my presentation at that conference, I chose Joseph. I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life when I would have questioned the presence or even the availability of grace in any part of history covered by the Old Testament. When I was a young believer, my attention was drawn at some point to a single verse in the first chapter of John that says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the meaning assigned to this verse is that there is a vertical line that intersects the horizontal axis of history at some point associated with the life of Jesus Christ. Perhaps through the animal shelter in which he was born or the cross on which he was died, perhaps through the grave that could not hold him, or the upper room on the day of Pentecost. But it was explained to me, and I believe that John 1.17 necessarily means that before that point in sacred history, the people of God had his law, but since that point, we have his grace and we are the possessors of his truth. This was my opinion for a long time until I was challenged to think about the nature of the law at some point, and recognize that the law is true. The law is truth. And as a matter of fact, it was only by the grace of God that that law was given to an undeserving people. And thus, in the Old Testament, in the law, we find truth and we find grace. And with these discoveries in mind, I went back to that verse in John 1, and realize the line that it represents isn't vertical, but it's horizontal. It represents not to successive, but to parallel administrations, the lesser, that of Moses, who was made the mediator of the law, and the greater, that of Jesus Christ, who was and is and always will be the mediator of grace and truth. I'm no longer surprised at the suggestion that we find grace in the book of Genesis, and in fact, I understand that it would conflict with our view of God if we did not. It's easy to read through the book of Genesis or just flip through the pages of our memories of Genesis and point out people in whose lives the grace of God is particularly obvious. We think very easily of Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But if it is true that grace expresses God's unmerited favor, then I think you might agree that there are even more sterling examples of grace in Genesis, people 
who do not seem nearly as deserving of that grace as Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. One of these possibly more striking examples of grace would be Cain, the firstborn of Adam and possibly the twin of Abel. Blooming brightly among the thorns and thistles newly strewn upon the earth was a tulip. In time, Reformed theologians would use that tulip as an anagram for doctrines central to their faith. Cain was an incarnation of the doctrine represented by its first letter, the T, or total depravity. Long before Narcissus fondly looked at his reflection of the still waters of a pool, Cain was a man who was totally absorbed with himself. Like the Pharisee who prayed alongside the publican in Jesus' parable, he was a man of religious pretense whose heart was far from God. In a fit of jealous rage, he committed a crime that God later would declare worthy of death. And yet our God, in his grace, allowed Cain to live. Another of these better examples of grace might be Lot, a self-centered young man who had no native respect for his elders, who chose for his dwelling a pit of iniquity instead of the pleasant countryside, who took for his wife a woman from among the pagans. And yet our gracious God saved him from the destruction that befell his neighbors and made him the father of two great nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Esau comes to mind with his vulgar lifestyle, his well-deserved reputation for violence, and his willful disregard for the values of his parents. And yet our gracious God made him a man of great prosperity and the seed of another great people, the Edomites. Among these arguably better examples of grace found in the book of Genesis would be any one of Joseph's first ten brothers with their shared disrespect for their father's name and their jealous treachery against their brother. Yet God, in his marvelous grace, assigned the names of these men to tribes of his covenant people, thus assuring their perpetual memory. And to this catalog of people who reveal themselves to be utterly unworthy of the blessings of God, you and I are required to add our own. And as fascinated as we are to see God's grace demonstrated in the lives of ancient people, we rejoice even more to see evidences of its presence in our own. Joseph was a man who was of the house and the lineage of deceit. His paternal grandfather, Isaac, was a weak man who displayed a blatant favoritism for one of his sons at the expense of the other. His paternal grandmother, Rebecca, was a strong, manipulative woman who worked cunningly behind the scenes to get her way and was as guilty of favoritism as her husband. His maternal grandfather, Laban, was a man perfectly content to violate his own word in order to gain his own purposes and may have been the first to say with an unconcerned shrug of his shoulders, the end justifies the means. His father, Jacob, took advantage of the advanced age and failing vision of his father to gain his blessing, and his mother, Rachel, for reasons of spite or superstition, stole her father's household goods when she left home with her husband. Given the gene pool 
from which Joseph emerged, the sterling quality of his character and the strength of his faith are particularly bright evidences of the grace of God in his life. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, 10 of whom were his elders. Yet we notice that from a very early age, he was clearly favored by Jacob and apparently regarded as Jacob's firstborn. At first glance, this seems to make Jacob as guilty of favoritism as his father had been. But when we examine the life of this family, Joseph's privileged position becomes more logical to us. In fact, as we read through the narratives of his life, it becomes plain that in the eyes of God, that this 11th born son of Jacob was indeed given the status of his firstborn. Not long ago, I heard someone refer to something a preacher had said about Joseph's life, and he summarized it as from the pit to the pinnacle. When we think about Joseph, that's a very useful phrase to use, but saying from the pit to the pinnacle isn't adequate. For as we survey the ebbing and the flowing of blessing and fortune of the life of this man, we realize we need something far more complex like this, from the pinnacle to the pit, from the pit to the pinnacle, from the pinnacle to the pit, from the pit to the pinnacle, from the pinnacle to the pit, and finally from the pit to the pinnacle. Born to the manor, he grew up in a setting of relative luxury and privilege. From that lofty estate, he was thrown literally into a pit near Dothan, allegorically into Egyptian slavery by the treachery of his brothers. From that pit, he rose to a position of great trust and responsibility in the household of Potiphar, only to be hurled once again into the pit of an Egyptian prison, this time by the hostility of a spurned woman. In that place, he again rose unexpectedly to a position of trust and responsibility, but was flung into the pit of potential despair by the forgetfulness of a man that he had befriended. And finally, remembered at last, he was drawn out of the pit for the last time and placed at the pinnacle of trust and power at the right hand of Pharaoh himself, a pinnacle he would occupy until his bones were lowered into the temporary pit of his temporary grave in Egypt. We survey the life of Joseph and recognize that it teaches us many lessons. But one of the lessons that we learn from Joseph is from something that is not there. In the middle of the ups and downs of Joseph's life is his encounter with the wife of a man who had come to trust him. The man was Potiphar, a man of some known status in the Egyptian court. Satan seems to have learned from his experience with us that one of the easiest ways to distract the people of God from the holy purposes of their lives is to place before us some fleshly temptation. It worked in the garden. It was successful with Samson and David. It was a part of Satan's assault upon Job and the first trial faced by Christ in the wilderness. And here it appears in the life of Joseph. And it has to do with Potiphar's wife, and I presume that you all know the story. In that regard, if I'm not mistaken, many, if not most, Bible-believing Christians share a common opinion regarding the appearance of Potiphar's wife. That opinion is that she was young and slender, that she was beautiful and flirtatious, 
that she was charming and alluring with her perfumed flesh and in her sensual garments. However, recent archaeological discoveries provide rather startling evidence that this popular view among us might be an error. Near the pyramid built as a tomb for the pharaoh of Joseph's time, a smaller crypt has been found its proximity indicating that it's the grave of a trusted advisor and servant. And while the hieroglyphics have blurred with time, experts claim that it appears to be the final resting place of this man named Potiphar, whom we know only from the book of Genesis. And carved into its interior walls are figures and symbols that represent significant events and people in Potiphar's life. And in one of them, Potiphar is shown standing beside a short, squat, muscular person, archaeologists naturally assumed to be a son. But when the debris from the base of the wall was cleared away, surprised excavators found that beneath this carving, two intertwined rings were carved in the wall along with the words, forever together. And that short, squat, muscular figure is obviously Potiphar's wife. Further research has discovered that Potiphar's wife was an athlete of great success and fame. She was a national hero who represented her native land in the International Olympic Games. On her side of the tomb, a small marble box was found, and when it was opened, they found medals inside, the ribbons long turned to dust, and each was described Summer Olympics 1937 B.C. She came home that year to wide acclaim, for she had won three medals, a bronze in the shot put, a silver in weightlifting, and she took the gold in sumo wrestling, which that year is known to have been a co-ed sport. I suppose that this qualifies her as the first trophy wife in all of history. And this explains how she was able to strip Joseph of most of his clothing with a single grab. Now, as you might have suspected, I made some of that up. <laughs> but I made it up to make a point. There are things among us as Christians, as Presbyterians, as Reformed Christians, as Evangelicals, as Fundamentalists, that are so commonly believed that no one thinks about them anymore. They get passed from person to person, decade to decade, generation to generation, theologian to commentator to layman in the pew. And they are repeated so often and challenged so seldom that we pass through life never questioning their veracity. In the Reformed ring of the church, we're very critical of Catholics and their dependence upon tradition. And yet, as a matter of fact, we have one of our own. The scriptures tell us absolutely nothing about the appearance of Potiphar's wife. Nothing at all. And yet the view persists among us that she was both beautiful and alluring. Now, let's be sure about this. No one is going to heaven or hell on the basis of his views of the appearance of Potiphar's wife. And no one's personal righteousness or usefulness to God is determined by his answers to questions about how she might have looked. But we have to wonder whether there are other elements of our faith matters much closer to the heart of salvation that are as lacking in biblical foundation 
as this common belief among us about the appearance of Potiphar's wife. One of the rallying cries of the Reformation, in fact, the fundamental rallying cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura. This we need to be very careful to practice. Another lesson drawn from Joseph's life informs our understanding of what we might reasonably expect from God as a result of our efforts to live holy and useful lives. There are some in the church who insist that there is a promised link between our faithfulness to God on the one hand and his blessing us in countless temporal ways on the other. The testimony of Joseph's life rails against such teaching as this. Loyal and true at home, he was a son who honored his father and mother. His reward was to be trade by his brothers and sold into slavery. He was diligent, hardworking, and trustworthy as a slave. His reward was to be cast into prison. He was honest and dependable as a prisoner. He was rewarded by being forgotten by a man he had helped and who had promised to be his advocate. Again and again, Joseph's personal righteousness is rewarded with degradation. And it would be no surprise if we were to learn that it was Joseph and not David who wrote the tortured words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the Lord's most profitable servants wrote, I have learned both how to be abased and how to abound. And to these words of Paul, Joseph whispers a quiet, Amen. The most holy and obedient man who ever lived was continually challenged and misunderstood and abandoned and finally put to death on a cross. As he was dying, indifferent pagans nearby cast lots for his only possession, the robe that he wore to his place of execution. If faithfulness results in wealth and success, then how do we explain the quality or the end of the life of our Lord Jesus? Joseph in the pit. Joseph chained and strapped to the back of an animal. Joseph falsely accused. Joseph in prison. Joseph forsaken. Remind us that the reward for faithfulness is the satisfaction of being faithful. And that the one to whom we've been faithful waits beyond the grave. Another lesson we might draw from Joseph's life has to do with the resilience of true faith. At several points in his life, Joseph could easily have become bitter toward God and abandoned his faith. To have followed the advice of Job's sweet, encouraging helpmate, who once suggested to her tortured husband, why don't you curse God and die? In his youth, Joseph was resented and despised by his brothers. He was forced to live most of his life alone in a pagan land, trying to be the right person and do the right thing. He was treated wrongly again and again. Who would have faulted Joseph if he had turned his back on God? If he had turned to the deceit of his forebears, if his moral philosophy had become, when in Egypt, do as the Egyptians do. Joseph's faithful to God. In the face of great setbacks and in the absence of any tangible reward is perhaps the crowning evidence that he was a man held firmly in the grip of the grace of God. Another thing that impresses us about Joseph 
is his fine character. Joseph was a gentleman. He was a man of noble bearing. He was one who modeled the fruits of righteousness to such an extent that his virtue and values were noted by others. Early in his life, he was found worthy of his father's trust and confidence. He refused the advances of Potiphar's wife, even when it would have been to his advantage to play by her rules. In his master's home and then in his prison, the awareness of others of his integrity and reliability and diligence promoted him to positions of responsibility and authority, and this as a Hebrew living among Egyptians. He made such an impression on Pharaoh that Jacob, who was known only as Joseph's father, was granted fertile land on which to settle with his family and allowed to live there in peace. On the grounds of Joseph's reputation alone, this peace lasted until there rose up a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And one final sign of the quality of Joseph's character and values is found in the fact that when he was placed in a position of great authority, he could easily have taken revenge on the butler who had broken his promise and the woman who had falsely accused him and his own brothers. But he didn't do it. In Reformed circles, we often combine the words grace and sovereign. The life of Joseph manifests the grace of God. It also reveals God's sovereignty. And examples of this abound. God trumped the deceit of Laban. Joseph's brothers wanted to destroy him. Instead, the Lord used their plotting to make a great man of Joseph. God turned the anger of Potiphar's wife to his own purposes. The Lord created dreams in the minds of an unbelieving baker, a pagan butler, and a godless king, and used those dreams to turn history the way he intended it to go. And to that end, the king's servant remembered Joseph exactly when God intended for him to do so. Joseph may not have known the words predestination and providence, but he was personally acquainted with the lofty truths we use those words to convey. After Jacob's death and burial, Joseph's brothers were justly afraid that he would now take out his wrath on them for their betrayal of him. His response to their fears is both simple and yet profound. He said, you meant it for evil against me. God meant it for good. Paul's words to Christians living in Rome are Joseph's experience in Egypt. Paul wrote, now we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his promises. Again, to the words of Paul, Joseph would have uttered a heartfelt amen. The day of everlasting glory is about to dawn. Enshrined and enthroned in the aura of bright and shimmering light, we see God the Father. Before and around him, the angels in all of their various ranks lift their voices with chants of praise that filled the vaults of heaven. And then as John describes the drama before us in Revelation, we watch as the redeemed from all of the ages draw near. They come first from the tribes of Israel and then from the Gentile lands beyond. Like pilgrims on another significant and glorious occasion, they bear palm branches in their hands. 
They are clad in gleaming white robes like guests invited to a wedding of unparalleled importance. At the Father's right hand is the Lamb, looking as if he had been slain, but now and forever alive. He surveys the sea of the redeemed, drawing near the place where he stands. He knows them all. He loves each of them. But his gaze falls on one of them, who in the course of his life was neither a Gentile nor a child of one of the Hebrew tribes. His name is Joseph. To no one in particular, but to any who happen to hear, the Lamb says, Behold, a man in whom is no guile. By the marvelous grace of our God, and by virtue of our faithfulness to him, may he have cause to speak in such a way of us on that grand day when eternity fully begins. May the grace of God our Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ sustain us all. Let us pray. Our Father, we understand that you have had lives of men like Joseph inscribed on the pages of your word for our instruction and our edification. And with this in mind, we pray that we might become familiar with his life and many others in order that the lessons that you have for us might be ours. Make us like Joseph. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.